our music theme through to this week is my chat with Simon Morrison, author of Mirror in the Sky, The Life and Music of Stevie Nicks, which is out today. Much like David Leaf in the episode before him, Simon Morrison is a fan-turned-biographer of the inimitable Stevie Nicks, known as both a solo artist and for her work with Fleetwood Mac. Simon has listened to Stevie's music since childhood and views her as one of the finest songwriters in the American experience. Hard to disagree with you there, Simon. He says he wrote Mirror in the Sky to dig deeper into Stevie Nicks. The parts of her story, he says, that have been suppressed, distorted, and lost over the years to hype and tabloid gossip. Simon is a veteran writer, especially about music, and I know you will really enjoy our conversation today. Take a listen. Simon, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk about Stevie Nicks today. What better way to spend a lunch hour than to talk about Stevie Nicks? How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much uh, for having me. It's super great to be with you. Absolutely. So, okay, you could have written about anything, right? Not only just anything in the world, but any musician. So what inspired you to write a book about Stevie Nicks and what is it about her that compels you? Um, a couple of things. Um, I grew up listening to her music um, and um, I actually started with a Fleetwood Mac album called Tusk, um, which was given to me when I was, uh, it was a birthday present. And um, I listened to that and uh, over and over and over and over again and just absolutely loved it. And I actually um, thought that um, her song Storms was absolutely sublime. And um, I just, I just played that endlessly. I, I, you know, worked out the chords. I, you know, memorized the lyrics. I, over time, when everything on became available on the internet, I started looking at the different recordings and demos of it. And um, I, you know, I just listened. And um, her solo career took off. And I thought "Rock a Little" was a fabulous album when it came out. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I started to kind of get interested in in the life of a superstar like that, who doesn't have you know much of a private life. By the way, she zealously guards her private space, but she's you know she can't go out into the public very often, except with her uh, entourage. And I started to read about her, and I read a lot of stuff that. Um, was distressing. Um, a lot of it was kind of negative and tabloidy. And um, I thought, you know, my understanding and just my ear and the ear of all of the fans out there was that this was, this was an incredibly great songwriter. Um, and, you know, given her prominence, perhaps one of the greatest ones um, of our lifetime. And so I actually thought, well, why is that the case? Like, why is, you know, why is there so much gossip out there when you can, you know, all celebrities are gossiped about, but there wasn't really an an appreciation um, of her art. And um, so I I actually wanted to get inside of it and how the songs were made and which songs were not made. And I learned that, you know, there's been some kind of censorship, I think is the word for it. And some things that some real gems out there that weren't recorded or given sort of due in the studio. And I also, when I read um, kind of existing biographies, um, I thought that, you know, there were some some stories that there were some gaps that I could fill and um, some errors that I could correct and, um, and just digging around and getting to know the people in her world and in the studios. Um, yeah, I really wanted to kind of 
do a biography of her to an extent, but also a biography of the songs. Absolutely. And, you know, you write in the book, and this is a correct assessment, if you ask me, that her, quote unquote, her music matters. I agree. So, I mean, to, to try to quantify this in a, on a podcast, I mean, you do it well in the book, but to try to quantify this on a podcast is hard. But what contribution has she made to the music industry as a whole? Well, first of all, she's um, an iconic female artist, and um, right. her story is very much a story of actually moving out um, from behind the scenes to actually front Fleetwood Mac and really take over that group on stage uh, to electrify audiences, um, to produce songs that actually really resonate with the experiences of her fans. So that when I've talked to a lot of the people who deeply love Stevie Nicks as I do, they were like, you know, these, this music that she created, um, and this is something that Stevie welcomes, is it belongs to her community. And um, the things she sings about, um, which on one hand are, are she, you know, she can be very vulnerable in her music. She can be very strong and defiant. She goes through a whole gamut of experiences that um, really resonate um, with people. And I think particularly female listeners. And the yeah. thing, I guess, if I guess the thing that I, I most want to sort of stress in the book is, you know, I'm, I'm a male writer and I um, made sure to consult and um, work with a lot of people who were female listeners. And I was really interested in their perceptions of the music and how um, I could weave that into this story. Um, it's a story about somebody who had to be better mm -hmm. um, as an artist than the men around her. And yeah. also um, somebody who, uh, whose tastes, I guess, um, sources of inspiration have, have been trivialized um, in a misogynistic way. Like if you go through and listen to rock history, you know, there's no problem with Led Zeppelin and these metal bands, you know, um, doing this kind of, you know, myths and legends and teenage boy stuff that appeal to them and they never let go. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think that for Stevie Nixon, this is certainly my own view, is that um, um, female imaginative spaces, fantasy, um, uh, these things are very rich and they are undervalued. And I have a, a teenage daughter and I recognized and learned that uh, teenage girls are badass. And um, that's, that's actually something that I think, um, you know, informs a lot of her music and a lot of her reading tastes and a lot of her sources of inspiration. I mean, she really, you know, channels goddesses. Yeah. Heroines of yore um, as also, and also really tapping into, I think, um, a, a wonderful imagining, a female imagining that's been devalued uh, by the patriarchy, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. And, you know, as a speaking of as a teenage girl, that's when I first encountered her music. I was going through one of my first of millions now breakups. It was a teenage girl and landslide really was kind of my entry point into her songwriting and into her music. And that song, of course, is a song she wrote about her own relationship ending with Lindsay Buckingham and we'll get to that but I'd, I'd like to talk about her childhood for a moment so what was her childhood like and what shaped her into the woman we later know 
Well, that was actually the, the most enjoyable part of the book to research because I got really obsessed by learning, like trying to find out like where she developed this, uh, you know, this natural musical skill. I mean, it was natural, but there are sources of inspiration. And um, her grandfather was really important to her. Um, who was a, he was a country music singer who traveled around um, and, you know, rode the rails. He was, he was somebody who was in and out of employment. He wasn't successful um, as a performer, but um, she grew up in Arizona um, at a time when the city of Phoenix was, was very, very small. It was well under a hundred thousand people. Mm -hmm. And she listened to radio there and she, you know, it was really actually steeped because of her grandfather in his music, as well as Appalachia. And that strain, I think of country music, that's really about raw experiences. Um, she performed a little bit with him and one of the most the curious story, and it's one that she, her, Stevie herself, uh, doesn't remember the details of is, is she performed with him in a tavern, um, a bar that um, her father owned, Stevie's father owned. He was somebody who became, you know, exceedingly um, successful in the sort of food and beverage business. Um, he worked also for Greyhound, became a really, really powerful executive. Um, but when she grew up, they traveled around, they moved around because of his job. So they were in Arizona and then they were in Utah, they were in California more than once. And, um, when she was in Altadena, which is, you know, on the border of Pasadena, um, her father briefly owned a tavern and there um, she sang with her grandfather just on the tables. There's like five, six tables in this place. And um, I was desperate to find like where this location was and just, and I literally went through right. phone books and all this and, you know, wrote to her and there's no, no clue anymore. And, and I found it and I very proudly went wow. there and took pictures of it and sent it to Karen Johnson or her handler. And um, I was super psyched about that. And it was just like actually going through this bit by bit, year by year story of like this kind of travel and all of the people that moved in and out of her life musically um, so that when she was, you know, in early high school, she was in a kind of mamas and papas type quartet that she performed with, with a couple of Christian boys and, you know, absorbed that sound. And then when she got involved with um, Lindsay Buckingham, who was her boyfriend, live-in partner for many years, um, they, they sat around and listened to the Kingston Trio endlessly. And that's how he learned, you know, part of his finger picking technique. And so it was a variety of influences, but I would say, you know, sort of Southwest country music, then some Appalachia influence from the grandfather. And then she picked up on um, sounds, um, you know, associated with the sort of folk revolution in the late 60s, early 70s. And then all, obviously when Fleetwood Mac came along and she became um, the lead singer with that group, there was that blues background to that group, but also the fact that popular music was being transformed um, for FM, um, for mass market. And so the, if you want to call it the kind of strains of revolution in country music, you know, the protest element to it, and also the politics of the blues, these things were kind of pushed away instead for a more dreamlike sound that really defined, you know, dreams, obviously, and, and other great Fleetwood Mac songs. Well, we're going to get to Fleetwood Mac in just a second, which I did not realize. And, you know, this will just, you know, maybe show that there's a gap in my music history here. But I didn't realize that Fleetwood Mac had been around for so long, for what, seven years before Stevie 
came into the band and had a, you know, a handful of records that they'd already done. But she is just so synonymous with that group to me. They had a real history before she entered, but we'll we'll get to that. But I really do want to know, obviously she has really deep roots in music. We know that she has influenced so many artists today that we hear. I mean, the list is a mile long of especially women that she's influenced, but who influenced her? Who were her in musical influences when she was starting out? Um, she actually names a few of them. Um, you know, she she listened to um, a lot of sort of um, crooners and male crooners, as well as, you know, singers on the waves in the 50s and 60s. But she actually cites like Joplin as an influence, mm-hmm. um, a strong influence early on. Um, she actually listened to, um, you know, Ella and Edith Piloff and these kind of other singers who were just like, you know, torch song performers and canonic kind of, um, you know, feminine icons. And so um, that that series of exposures, I think, allowed her to begin to kind of assemble her own onstage persona. But um, when I've looked at her performances, there are things that actually she does in performance that suggests that she's really schooled in in uh, modes of performance and theater that you wouldn't think of as associated with her. She seems to know an awful lot about vaudeville. Um, she seems to, you know, have a great deal of sort of knowledge of the history of um, burlesque and, you know, sort of the popular entertainments that would take place in music halls um, at a period in time when people actually really socialized together, you know, and would go out and dance together and actually see these performances. And so one of the things I noticed when um, I looked at one of the greatest all-time performances by her, which is in 1979, when she does Angel on stage, um, she does a little dance routine. And um, she's in this fabulous floppy hat and, you know, a shawl. And, and then she actually does this kind of buck and wing dancing with a little bit of the mashed potato thrown in. And I'm like, where did she learn all of this? And it must have been from actually watching early on these variety shows. So on the one hand, it was like that kind of old time theater turned into TV variety shows. And then some of the sort of, you know, iconic figures of the 60s, plus some jazz elements, plus a lot of the sort of, you know, older iconic country singers. Um, that all comes together. But I do think that there's something about it all that given her um, mystical, if you will, and you know, I love mysticism and the supernatural, her imaginings along those lines, that the special aspect of it that she gave to all of that, it was actually sort of moving it into, yeah, truly a spiritual place and sort of, you know, this amalgam of influences. And then on stage, she actually becomes this, you know, a kind of sylph, you know, a kind of, um, you know, an enchantress. And um, that, that I think, reflects her reading habits, you know, more than anything. Um, How many times have you seen her live? Just curious. Um, Probably a ton. Five or six, actually. Not, you know, not as, not, not, not as diehard as other people. No, um, but I, I mean, grew I've up never, in Canada and I couldn't see them as, as often I would have liked. So. I've never seen her live. She is actually coming to my area within the fall. And after reading this book, I might have to splurge and get it. You gotta go, you gotta go. Um, Yeah, I feel like I need to. It's a great, um, according to the fan base and these people, you know, the the people who are going to see them, the Asprey show she just did recently was fantastic. Um, She actually sang in a thunderstorm, you know, and, uh, you know, it was just, it was just completely overpowering. And the wonderful thing is she did this, she performed in a festival uh, in NJ. And um, 
it was, you know, Pearl Jam and, and various acts, 80s, 90s acts. And she came on and the entire audience changed <laughs> to her oh, massive yeah. fan base and obviously, and it was just completely different vibe. Suddenly it was all positivity. And it was just this great kind of, you know, celebration of her and, um, yeah, I mean, she is the, she is the reigning goddess. Of she is, yeah. she is. So she, so backing up to kind of her earlier years, she dropped out of college to start her career as a duo with her then boyfriend, Lindsay Buckingham. I think they were together for about seven years. So can you, and then of course, you know, then they've continued to work together with Fleetwood Mac and everything. So can you describe for listeners who may not know, because we get listeners from, from all walks of life. We talk about so many different topics on the show. This isn't a music podcast. So there yeah. might be people listening that, um, that don't know the, the personal and professional history between Stevie and Lindsay. So can you, can you talk to us about that relationship? Yeah, it's um, it's one of those great artistic love affairs that I guess has a personal equivalent, but the personal side of it is, has been, you know, at times less successful than the artistic, let's just say it. I think the two of them um, love each other. Um, it's been um, a drama that's played out in the music. Um, people say, oh, look at how Fleetwood Mac and then the two of them before Fleetwood Mac and, and a- even afterwards in their solo careers kind of actually, you know, recorded it and made songs about their personal lives. But there, there were times, and Rumors is a great example of this, when their troubles um, in their relationship um, were so acute that it must have just been completely harrowing and very, very difficult for them to yeah. actually to record together. The story is that um, when they were in high school, um, they're a year apart. Um, they met at a, a kind of social gathering that was basically a kind of Christian fellowship thing um, that was, you know, allowed boys and girls to get together and, and hang out in a kind of safe space. And um, they were both very musical and they, they met at one of these gatherings and did a little singing together. And then they started dating and um, the, you know, they, Lindsey Buckingham um, in near San Francisco, where he grew up um, in Daly, um, his dad had a coffee plant, um, you know, he packaged and sold coffee. And there, the two of them actually went in after hours and, and did and started recording songs and writing them. And he was, you know, developing as a, as a what he became, which is a virtuoso guitarist. And she was uh, writing a lot of lyrics and, and developing her voice. Um, which is a very distinct sound. Um, right. That's, you know, part of, the, I guess, the fortune in her career is she has this natural voice of hers. It's, it's just so distinct. It's just unrecognizable. And the fact is her voice and his blended so well. She had a grain to her voice that really, a buzz to it that resonated with his so perfectly, made for a great duo. So they, 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 they put together a lot of music, but then they got involved. Um, just the opportunity came along to join a group called Fritz. Um, which was a real kind of a hot mess of a band that some people say, oh, it was a psychedelic act, you know, it was the 60s, it was San Francisco, but they did all sorts of stuff. And they did uh, concerts that were covers of the blues to a little bit of country to a little bit truly of psychedelic to this kind of just sort of free for all jam session stuff. And she recorded um, a couple of great songs for them uh, that you can listen to online. A Funny Kind of Love is the wonderful song that she did with them. And she was she was kind of the star of this group, even though the, the boys in the band didn't think that she was, you know, so musically gifted 
or was really contributing to the songwriting. But she was the star and immediately at the microphone, I mean, a real compelling presence. That band actually um, tried to get, tried really hard to get a recording contract. And uh, for various reasons, um, including just the messiness of what they were doing, um, including the, I think just the, the sort of politics at the time, these two, this, this very attractive boy girl duo, Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham were picked mm. up and signed uh, by the young Keith Olsen. And they, they put out an album, um, which, you know, it tanked, it didn't do well. Um, it's, an, it's, a, it's a cult classic now, it should be re-released, but they, the two of them don't get along so well these days. And so there have been efforts to actually approach them about re-releasing your first record, you know, uh, but they, they just haven't been able to agree about that. But they went on a little tour despite the album not doing well and um, very modest tour, a um, couple of places in LA, um, the familiar sort of uh, troubadour, you know, and they were back up. Yeah. So but they, there was a, there was a college, you know, University of Alabama. Uh, Which is just athlete. down the street from where I live. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. So, yeah. right. And then the, the, one of the DJs there just loved it and started playing it endlessly. Um, and a frozen love, the big track with a big. So you're welcome, ball. world from Alabama to Phoenix. <laughs> well, and the funny thing was, she did interviews when she was down in Alabama at that time, and she's like, you know, we're so super popular here, I might want to live here, you know. And oh, she was wow. pretty serious about it. And uh, she's welcome at my home anytime. <laughs> the door is always open for her. Hey, my my dream, my dream, and, and the dream of, of the Stevie Nicks Nation is for for her and Lindsay to you know get back together after all these years and, and troubles and storms and and actually redo that tour. <laughs> so, or maybe do it. Start it right here where it all began, right, right. here. And the, the after party is at your place, absolutely. Oh yeah, I and whole, <laughs> we'll decorate just for you, Steve. We'll we'll get it we'll get it done up with with the scarves and the whole situation just for her. She'll she'll love. It. Um, so of course you know she has a career in Fleetwood Mac and as a solo artist but let's start if we can with Fleetwood Mac so she joins the band in 1975 as I said a minute ago we you know this band has already has been together for a while they've had a handful three four five ish records out um they go on though to become the best one of the best-selling bands of all time over 120 million records sold globally that's those are crazy numbers and yeah. so what did she add to the band and what did she bring to Fleetwood Mac who who took you know an established band and took them to superstardom especially when that second album as you mentioned a minute ago when rumors came out um they just became iconic so what what did she bring to the band that elevated the band well she brought songs um that'll do it she brought rihanna to that band and that song um you know kicked ass and they they uh you know when when you know initially they were you know they do this first album together the duo and it's you know not a success, uh, well modest success in Alabama, and then obviously it was a big concert hit in Alabama. Um, but you know there was like, well, can we do another album? Will will our record label support that? And they started. They had a lot of songs ready to go, um, but both of them didn't want to sort of be you know second tier and just be on you know the sort of steakhouse circuit, you know as Buckingham called it. Mm -hmm. So, um, but they were in the studio, uh, Sound City, working on a second um, album together, and um, the drummer of Fleetwood Mac, 
Dominic Fleetwood was in there at the same time. And that band, yeah, was an old um, British blues act um, that had some great hits, and, but it, personnel had come in and out and they were really on the rocks. And it was sort of, it was a dying brand. Um, and uh, Fleetwood Mac, they were just trying to figure out like how to go forward. They'd lost some personnel. And Fleet, Mick Fleetwood like laid his eyes on Stevie and, um, you know, and, uh, and then heard uh, some of this music and heard Buckingham playing. And there was a meeting arranged at um, a sort of Mexican restaurant in LA on Third Avenue. And they, they got along and they, they tried to work it out. And she, and Buckingham, because he had this force of will, I mean, he's, you know, he's a kind of tough personality in this way, you know, sort of a servant guy. He made sure that Fleetwood Mac listened to Leanne and, um, and um, some of the other songs that they'd been putting together on their own. Mm -hmm. And they, they put those onto the album. And suddenly you had this old blues act with this, you know, um, figure who, you know, is a sort of like, you know, high-class Roma kind of enchantress performing Rhiannon and way, the way she performed, it seemed like a kind of a possession, you know? And it was instantly captivating. That album, you know, took off, but only after they toured it, they toured the hell out of that album. They were in the buses, they were sleeping in the car, they had dirty clothes. It wasn't a good time touring that record, but they toured and toured and toured. And that, that track, Rhiannon, um, took off and then Landslide did. And which is a very old song in her catalog, you know, recorded. Which I didn't realize how how early on in the catalog Landslide was um, until I read your book. I that's that's I mean it makes sense because she wrote it about a breakup that happened, you know, around like in the sixth whenever it was the early seventies, and um, I just didn't realize that it was that deep. Like she's such even from so early on was bringing to the table Rhiannon, you know, like that was one of and I've had that song stuck in my head, Simon, for the past. 12 hours probably like it just I haven't been able to stop thinking it. it's just gets in your head and gets in your heart you know it's just so good and um I'm wondering you know so we've got we've got her with the band now we've got rumors we've got tusk but then she branches out as a solo artist so what was behind that decision what was behind that decision was um I think some of the mistreatment that happened with Fleetwood Mac the fact that Silver Springs was not put on rumors that was uh, you know something she never forgot um Smile at You this great track brilliant song um you know didn't end up getting recorded on Tusk um she um had had been approached by other people to actually go solo and for a long time she thought about doing it and there was this perverse moment at which Mick Fleetwood the drummer of Fleetwood Mac, but also the manager of the group or kind of mismanager of the group. He mm -hmm. actually suggested he'd be her manager as a solo artist while she was also part of Fleetwood Mac. And, you know, there were people that actually paid attention to her, the power, um, the fact that she, um, yeah, just had on stage, on tour, was the focal point of all of the reviews and the audience and her songs and the way she elaborated those songs and actually turned them into these kind of experiences, right? Um, that were all consuming. They thought, okay, this is this. She, she can actually easily be separated from from Fleetwood Mac. Tusk, you know, was not rumors, and rumors was like hit after hit after hit. Tusk is a complicated record. Um, people who like to theorize about these things say it's a kind of, you know, 
reaction against rumors or deconstruction, whatever you want to say. But, you know, it, it sold 4 million copies, which is huge, but it wasn't the 100 million of rumors. And so there was a sense uh, from the record executives that the band was, because of Buckingham's sort of more eclectic taste, was going in a direction that was you know, off-brand and off-label and off-commercial. And uh, so they were not getting along the band members. They not, were not getting along with management. And here you had this singer who still had a lot of songs ready to go, was the number one attraction. Without her, there's no Fleetwood Mac at this period in time. And right. so very, very um, ambitious um, uh, executives actually, you know, went, went after her and, you know, convinced her to actually, with all sorts of bells and whistles, to actually embark on a solo career. There were promises of doing uh, kind of movie music and TV stuff and all of the rest of that. And so she signed up and was, you know, um, a lot of, you know, there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen, um, but she had to change her sound willingly. And then, you know, with a lot of assistance from others, handpicked, um, actually morphed and actually became an artist for the 80s. So listeners, I have to tell you, that I don't prep my guests with questions. Simon, you have not seen a single question I was going to ask you. <laughs> and I'm going to I'm going to no. blow your mind a little bit with this question, so get ready for it. it it's yeah. it's an impossible question, but right. I I'm going to challenge you here. So, if we're thinking of the Mount Rushmore of Stevie Nicks songs, right? So, four songs that end up on the Mount Rushmore of, of Stevie Nicks, whether they're with Fleetwood Mac or as a solo artist, what are those four Stevie Nicks Mount Rushmore songs that you are going to put on Mount Rushmore? Or you can even do this with albums. I know this is hard. That's like, it's impossible to narrow her multifaceted, you know, what is it now? Almost 50 year career down to four songs. But what are four songs for you that just epitomize who she is as a performer? Um, well, it's a great question, and I think it's one of those questions that, you know, if you ask me in, in a year, it'd be maybe a different list, yeah, but yeah, yeah. more Desert Island songs, you know, I would say um, I've always loved Belladonna, uh, which is the title track on her first solo record. Um, I've always loved, and I love it because of the, um, well, I, I love it because of just the absolutely magical, sorry, there's a harmonic turn that she does, ooh, this belladonna, that, that phrase and that hook is a, is a sort of closing gesture of a phrase, it's just sublime. After a song that's actually sounds fairly embittered, and then you just have this kind of reflective, kind of mature look at, back at this scene. I mean, it's a gorgeous song. Um, it's also very loosely organized, which I love. Um, I think that her longer, uh, songs that have a looser form, um, those are the best ones and more reflective of her versus the kind of tighter, you know, constructions that Fleetwood Mac, you know, these, these, these songs that were sort of banged into shape, um, they lose a lot of feeling. So I love that track. Um, I love Landslide for the reasons everybody else does, because it's about so many things, because mm -hmm. she wrote it when she was exceedingly young, but it sounds like somebody who is, you know, it's like, you know, the Joni Mitchell song, Both Sides Now, That's, that was written when yes. she was exceedingly young, but, you, but it becomes like the all-time greatest song because it seems so mature and so wise. Um, so she's really challenging something in Landslide. Mm -hmm. um, I love actually a recent song, well, an old demo, 
that she had kicking around on cassette. Um, and when she found out that the demo was sort of online skating around and she realized that, wait a minute, I have a lot of my music is running around out there, not in the form I want it to be. <laughs> she, um, it's called um, 24 Karat Gold. Yeah, and you wrote about that in the book. I loved reading about just that. Absolutely love that song. Um, besides the fact that there's like gold jingling in the background to it. It's just this absolute, it's, that is the Stevie Nicks if she had become a country act at the start, no Fleetwood Mac, no Lindsey Buckingham, that's what she would have written. So that that song, um, you know, uh, like Cat House Blues on that album is just like, this is where she came from. She is a kind of like, you know, um, yeah, it's like a sort of old time kind of country song and showgirl song and it's, it's, it's terrific. And then frankly, I would actually put the um, song that the people don't really know, but it's available on demo. It's I think it's probably the greatest song she ever wrote, and yet it's it's not recorded. It was not a lot, you know, it was not put on one of the Fleetwood Mac albums or one of the solo albums. It was you know kind of suppressed again. Joan of Arc. Um, okay. It's it's, uh, it's an amazing kind of feminist an anthem. It's about you know Joan of Arc, um, but it's 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 about. Um, female power. And, and um, I, you know, listened to that song and, and really loved it because it's just um, the sheer kind of force behind the words there and also the words themselves. And the thing that I discovered about Stevie Nicks um, is that when she takes a text about somebody else or something from literature or, you know, myth, um, it's, it's incredibly smart. Uh, interpretation of it. So I did the, the nerdy thing of saying, well, let me take the text of this song about Joan of Arc and actually run it by a Joan of Arc historian expert, right? <laughs> and wow, so I sent cool. it to this, this fellow and he's like, my God, this is actually a really like fascinating kind of interpretation of this legend. And that happened over and over. It happened with Alice in Wonderland, for example, and Rhiannon likewise. So um, I, I just think that song is incredible. Um, the texture of the demo is amazing. I just, I would just ask everybody listening to this to, to check out that track. You can find it online. Oh, I will be. I mean, you know, the deep cuts, you know, I, I'm going to get into <laughs> the deep cuts, but I mean, I could do my own Mount Rushmore just off of hits. I mean, I could do probably three or four Mount Rushmore's just off of just top 10 hits. But um, I want to know, you know, as our, as our time is closing together, which this, it just has gone so fast and I have so many more questions, but um, I want to know, you know, we know Stevie Nicks, the performer, the public figure, but who is Stevie Nicks, the woman? Um, she's somebody who um, protects her psychic space fiendishly. That is to say, um, she, uh, her private life is, there's private lives and there's private lives. She um, doesn't trust many people. Um, and so the people that have been in her life, have been, been in her life, have been with her for decades and decades. Um, her relationships um, with men, um, excluding perhaps Lindsay Buckingham, but perhaps including him, um, have been um, far less important, I think. Um, and um, I won't say transactional, but you know, less um, significant um, for, I think, her emotional and psychological life than um, her girlfriends. Mm -hmm. um, she's somebody who um, is uh, draws. She's somebody who has always written a lot of poetry. 
Um, she, um, when she's writing a song, she will often go through um, her poetry books to find um, lyrics and sometimes will combine more than one poem in a song. She's also somebody who's an intense diarist and her diary entries are um, mixed together with the poetry. So on one hand, you have a sort of, you know, hour to hour chronicle of like what's going on in the studio recording this song and who's causing trouble and what did we do? And then mixed together with this incredible um, imaginative imagery. So, um, you know, it's like, it's like really a, a sort of, she lives despite she in the 21st century, super famous, super wealthy in all the West. So I think like to think of her as living a fairly, um, a kind of life of the mind, like a, a Hildegard of Bingham type of figure, you know, yeah. it's almost a kind of like she's, yeah, there's, there's, there's something that kind of um, almost convent-like about her existence, I would say. Um, um, she's a, you know, a deep fiction reader. Um, the list of her favorite longs, novels is long and, and rich and very international. Um, and she's, um, you know, cares about her dogs. Um, she's um, interested in, you know, this is this is a pretty pretty grim world we're in. Sure. Um, she she actually has always um, tried very hard to champion the the beautiful and 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 actually show that the beautiful can be really profound, and to actually actually provide that to to all of us. Well, the book is beautiful. It's just a glimpse behind the curtain of this woman we all know. I mean, she's an icon, but um, it's. I, that's I'm, I'm obviously interested in her as a performer, but I'm also interested in the in the well-rounded picture of, of who she is as a person. And I think this book really provides that. And my last question for you is, you know, she's obviously not dead. She's not only not dead, she's still performing. She's like I said, coming to Alabama, which which is as which is I'm like, and that makes sense now, right? Because not unfortunately not a lot of icons like her make their way down to Alabama but Alabama is important to her it matters yeah. to her it has a part in her story and so I'm just gonna have to splurge and buy the ticket and just yeah. you know, funny be damned <laughs> live live your life right but my last question for you is you know again realizing not only is she still very much alive but she's still very much performing but what in your estimation you know 25 50 years from now 100 years from now will her legacy be I'd like to think, you know, if the world were different, um, she would be uh, in Bob Dylan's place um, with the Nobel wow. Prize okay. as a lyricist, um, with that, you know, stature as a kind of figure that is, you know, a real voice of consciousness um, for America and um, um, but that that's, you know, that, that requires a different world um, that requires um, a society that's not uh, run by men, frankly, and it also requires um, a society that actually recognizes that uh, that you know feelings matter and, and feelings are good. And actually, you know, one of the things she's able to do with her music is, um, you know, it's like people say, well, the lyrics don't really make much sense, and they're sort of, you know, um, they don't really tell a concrete story, and I don't understand the imagery. Uh, but they capture a feeling, you know, and um, as much as when you listen to rumors, you can say, well, that's that's the sound of 1977, right? But mm -hmm. it's not. It's a kind of feeling associated with 77 that was, was created by artists um, at that time. And so it's it's this kind of like 
all of the things that are bad in our world, you know, the violence, the repression, the, the um, mistreatment, the abuses, the material, the hardness. Um, the answer to all of that and the repost to all of that is in music and I think particularly her music. And so I really think that hopefully uh, we will get in a place um, in American culture to actually see uh, what she did as, you know, uh, not only an astonishing achievement, but actually as a real kind of uh, a lesson for, I think, um, you know, ways to look at the world and ways to actually appreciate being alive in this world. Well, for the next three days, you can find me on a Stevie Nicks bender. I will come out of that when I've listened to all the deep cuts and your book has really taken me there. Mirror in the Sky, The Life and Music of Stevie Nicks is the book. It hits stands October 4th. And if you're a music aficionado or just want to read about one of the most compelling women of all time, you got to pick this up. Obviously, listeners, you can hear from this interview, the passion that Simon puts into this book. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks very much. It's an honor. Thank you so much, Simon. Technology, unfortunately, cut our conversation off at the very end, but it was so great spending time with you, and I loved the book. Listeners, go grab a copy of Mirror in the Sky, which, as always, I've linked in the show notes. It is out today, October 4th. We've got more great conversations headed your way. Stay tuned.